Well, if you have a Bible, let's open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to finish up our study through 1 and 2 Thessalonians as we've just been taking this, these two New Testament letters and just been going through them verse by verse. And so we're going to finish up our study this morning. And so hopefully you know where, first, where 2 Thessalonians is by now. If not, feel free to use the table of contents. There is a pew Bible there in front of you, hopefully, if you need to, to use it or however you access it on your phone or with paper. Have that in front of you as we're just going to go verse by verse through this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 6 and we're going to go to the end of the letter this morning as we finish up. And so while you're opening there, let me ask you a question. Uh, if you knew for certain that Christ would return tomorrow, how would that impact the way that you live today? If you knew for certain that Christ was coming back tomorrow, how would that impact the way that you live today? Would it be unfettered evangelism, going knocking on doors that you never would have gone to before? Would it be an all-night vigil at the church, kind of like a big lock-in? Would it be going on that fishing trip you've always wanted to go on? Would it be a shopping spree? What would it be? If you, if, if you knew for certain that Christ was going to return tomorrow, how would that impact the way you live your life to, today? Let me tell you another story. In 1844, there was a man named William Miller who was studying the Old Testament uh, book of Daniel. And he was a Baptist minister at the time, and he be, became convinced that Christ would return on October the 22nd, 1844. As you can imagine, Christ did not return on October 22nd, 1844. We're still here. But in the, in the wake of his declaration that this is the day that the Christ is going to return, many of his follower, followers, known as the Millerites, who were spread out actually over multiple states, kind of like a big multi-site kind of thing, the Millerites, one thing that they did was they quit their jobs, they, they sold all of their possessions, they were just absolutely convinced that Christ was going to return on October the 2nd, 1844, and that's how they responded. As you probably figured out, Christ did not return then, and Miller and his followers faced very public scorn and ridicule and even violence. And in the aftermath of this publicly failed prophecy, this event actually went down and has become known as, quote, the great disappointment. You can imagine having something like that attached to your name and your ministry, that you made this declaration and it went down in such flames that it forever will be referred to as the great disappointment. But despite that, Miller's theology actually lived on and it actually became the foundation for the modern Seventh-day Adventist movement. And so you still see kind of the, the impact of William Miller and his theology. And when you think about these people that were so convinced that Christ was going to return on this particular day, it's easy to chuckle at the Millerites, but it's not hard to find similar instances of people being so convinced of Christ's absolute imminent return that they neglect the world around them, or they go and they quit their jobs and they sell their possessions. And we've seen this happen throughout history. Oftentimes what, what will also happen is many folks will then bunker up into a, a holy huddle and ignore everyone else. You know, we're going to just kind of retreat from everything and everyone around us. And we think about that as we draw our study of First and Second Thessalonians to a close this morning. We're reminded again that this letter was written to a, a church, a group of young Christians who were under persecution, duress, and confusion. 
Remember, they lived in this massive port city in the ancient Near Eastern world, Thessalonica. It's still around today. Major port city was kind of like a, uh, an entry point for people who were making their uh, pilgrimage to Mount Olympus to go pay homage to the Greek and Roman pantheon of the gods. And they, many times they went through Thessalonica. And so in the shadow of Mount Olympus, here you have this group of Christians that is declaring there is one true and living God. And, and there is one God, and He has a Son, and His name is Jesus Christ. And He alone is the one by which people can be saved. And you can imagine the ridicule and mocking that they, were, that they got. But then also as they're trying to learn the, face, learn the faith and process what Paul is telling them, there was a lot of confusion. And Paul has been writing to them to kind of clear some things up. And, but despite the ridicule that they were enduring, Paul was actually encouraged by their faithfulness to Christ and their witness, not only to that massive port city in Thessalonica, but also to the kind of the larger Macedonian region. Remember he says, you know, God's name and Christ's name has been sounding forth through your witness throughout the entire region. And Paul is encouraged by that. Why? Because they had not bunkered up. They were continuing to reach out. They were continuing to take the faith and to share it with those around them. They had, they had not looked inwardly. They were continuing to reach out, and Paul was encouraged by that. And so in his first letter, 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote to encourage them and also to offer further teaching on the second come of, coming of Christ and instructions on how to live life in community. You know, So what does this new church community look like? How does the gospel shape the way that we interact with each other? And we looked at that a lot in 1 Thessalonians. And in the second letter, remember, there was someone who actually delivered this letter um, by hand, and obviously they came back and gave a quick report to Paul on what was going on, and, and it prompted him to write a second letter, which is 2 Thessalonians. And Paul continued to encourage this group, but he also wrote to offer further teaching and instruction to help with this ongoing confusion on the second coming of Christ, but also to address another problem related to that that we're going to look at this morning that's unique to this passage, and the problem of idleness, laziness, and unruliness. And apparently some people had responded to the confusion over Christ's second coming by just refusing to work. And another view is that a wealthy benefactor was helping poor people, but instead of working to kind of help improve their situation, they just refused to work and took the money. But as we'll see, Paul argues that a robust understanding of the second coming of Christ and a deepening understanding of the gospel actually propels us towards a better understanding of the present value of work in the world around us. So as we understand Christ more, as we understand the gospel more, we understand our whole life better, and part of that is we understand our work. And how does, that, how does, that, how does the gospel propel us in that way? Here's what Ed gravely said in his helpful little commentary. He said, Paul, or in an article that he wrote, Paul illustrates for us that a robust belief in the end of the world should lead us to more work, not less. It should lead us to a mission, not a bunker. And so see if you can pick up some of this stuff as we read these closing verses in 2 Thessalonians, starting in verse 6. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word this morning. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were, when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. 
It was not because we do not have the right, have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm grateful for that. Let me uh, pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us this morning. Please pray with me. Father, would you please, by your Spirit, Lord, take this word and apply it to our hearts. Help us to make much of Christ. Redescribe reality to us even in these moments. Prepare our hearts as we come to the table. Help us to be reminded of the gospel. Help us to be reminded of your sovereign work of redemption in the world around us. And remind us that the gospel changes absolutely everything. We pray these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen. I don't know if you noticed that little kind of end subscript that Paul puts at the end. You know, this is, I signed this with my own hand. This is the way that I write. Uh, most scholars believe that Paul actually dictated this letter to someone called an amanuensis, which is a fancy word for a secretary who wrote these words down. And then when Paul was finished, what he did was he added his kind of apostolic signature to the end. And so he's saying, see, you can see that I'm putting my signature on this letter. This is the way that I write. And I've always just in, enjoyed that little aside there. And he says, when you see the signature, this is a sign of guarantee that I'm, you know, I approve this message. And this morning we think about just the gospel and how's it, how it's at work. We're going to ask the big question, how does the gospel impact the way we think about our present work as we await the return of Christ? How does the gospel impact the way we think about our present work as we await the return of Christ? That's kind of the big question that we're going to ask this morning. And we're going to see two things. Number one, we follow Christ as we faithfully do the work he calls us to do. That's the first thing. Second thing, we persevere in doing good for the glory of Christ in the world. Those are the two things. I'll remind you of them later. Let's look at that first one. Point one, we follow Christ as we faithfully do the work he calls us to do. We've all heard those coaching cliches, you know, leave it all on the field, play hard until the final whistle. I myself have used them, especially as our soccer season just closed up and the mighty red pandas went undefeated in rec league soccer. I used those. Lord, yeah, I was looking at the kids. I'm like, play hard to the final whistle and give it all that you have and leave it all on the field and let's play hard. And as your team faces a tough game, you try to encourage them to play hard and do their best until the very last second of the game. You know, play hard all the way to the end. And in 1847, Horatius Bonner wrote a great hymn entitled, Go Labor On. And here's what he said. Go labor on, spend and be spent, your joy to do the Father's will. It is the way the master went, should not the servant tread it still. Go labor on, go spend and be spent, go give your life away for the glory of Christ in all that you do. 
And there are many analogies given in Scripture to describe the Christian life. You can think it's described like a pilgrimage to a faraway land or a race to be run with conviction or an ongoing battle. You can think of all these different metaphors and word pictures and analogies that the Scripture gives us. And in the Olivet Discourse recorded in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus taught in Matthew 24, here's what he said, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. This idea of be ready and be on watch and we don't know when the Lord is going to return and, and be faithful and just be about the work that the Lord has called us to do. The big idea is that the Christian life is to be one of activity and faithfulness and forward momentum from the moment of conversion until we draw our last breath of the Lord calls us home. You know, that we are people who are on mission. We are on a pilgrimage. We are, you know, moving forward in our faith and we, we trust Christ and we are one of, one of just, a, as the Christian life has been described, a long obedience in the same direction, which is a great definition. But apparently in this church, there was, uh, in this church in Thessalonica, there was an ongoing problem of idleness in the Thessalonian community related to a, a wrong view of the second coming. And this was previously mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, where Paul called them to, quote, admonish the idol, but apparently it had gotten worse. And there is some debate over the exact cause of the idleness. There's been all kinds of different views that are out there. I personally hold the view that it was probably a mix of bad theology about the return of Christ and just the sin of human laziness that we all wrestle with from time to time. It's kind of a mix of those two things. And so in verses 6 through 10, Paul addresses this issue by giving them further instructions. And let's look at that. In verse 6, Paul gives a command, quote, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's doing is he is, uh, as one, commentary, one commentator called it, quote, invoking the name. And by invoking the name of Christ, Paul is reminding them of his authority as an apostle to make demands of them as he is about to teach them and he's asking them to pay attention. And some people today want to ignore Paul's words in the Bible because he says things that they don't like or culture doesn't celebrate them. But we don't get that option because Paul was directly commissioned by Christ to speak and write as his mouthpiece as an apostle. And so as we read the words of Paul, we are reading the word of the Lord as the Holy Spirit inspired him. And he commands them to keep away from anyone walking in idleness and that Greek word that's translated idleness, that's a Greek word, ataktos, which is unruly, undisciplined, or out of ranks. It's kind of military language is what that is, you know, military language. And instead, he tells them to walk in line or accord with what? The teaching that they have received, the tradition that has been passed down to them. And he describes that tradition in verses 7 through 9. Look at what he says. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. And so Paul taught them the importance of working for a living by referencing his own personal example. As we know, he was a, a tent maker and he worked hard not to be a burden. They didn't want to be a burden to this kind of burgeoning congregation. And he did not want to also be seen as a freeloader. 
And there is a similar sentiment in verse in First Thessalonians chapter two, verse seven, where he says, "You know, we we didn't come to you as an empty suit, but we came and we labored among you, and we were happy to give our lives away to you as a like a nursing mother caring for her children." And in verse nine, Paul mentions that even though he had a God given right to be supported as an apostle, they and he's talking about Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who are men, who are mentioned at the top of the letter that they purposely worked hard to set an example to follow. When you think about that, a lot of us really do learn best by watching other people, don't we? We, we watch other people and we kind of imitate them. You know, I know for me, especially if I'm trying to fix something, one thing I'll do is I'll see if there's a YouTube video that's a tutorial, and I imitate that person as I try to fix that problem. I'm doing exactly what they tell me to do. Okay, that did, they did that and it worked. And so it's probably in my best interest to do that exact same thing because it's probably going to work. Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't, right? You know, but we're grateful for that. And you can probably think of someone in your own life that the Lord has used that you imitate them in some way, you know, and you, you have, you, you have, the Lord has given you uh, them as like a, an example to follow or someone to imitate and you're just encouraged by their faith. And a lot of times we we work and we grow and we change like that. And we're grateful for these people that the Lord has put in our path. And so you can kind of trace Paul's logic when he thinks about this. Jesus called the apostles to follow him and to imitate him. The apostles themselves imitated Christ after his departure. And then the apostles called future disciples to keep imitating them as they imitate Christ, and on and on it goes. There's this chain. And Paul says, Paul would later write, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so you can see this logic of the chain of people. And in verse 10, this tradition was also passed down verbally, so not just in like human form, but also verbally in a very memorable saying. Look at verse 10. So this life of imitation, and look at what he says. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command verbally. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Very, you know, very memorable, pithy way of saying that. Here's what one of my professors in seminary, Dr. Kara, who wrote a really helpful commentary on Thessalonians, were thinking about what does he mean there? Here's what he said. Paul's proverbial command places a stress on the ethical component. Paul is not speaking of the situations in which someone is willing to work but cannot find a job, or someone does have a job but it's a very low-paying job, or a person who's physically not able to work. These situations may require alms, and that's just a fancy word for money given to help those in need. Kara goes on and says, he is speaking to those who intentionally decide not to work. He's looking at kind of the heart element that's there. And if you're around in town, you probably have heard other local business owners say, I've heard it many times, it says, I have plenty of good jobs available, I just can't find anybody willing to work. I can't find anybody willing to do the job. And sadly, that problem doesn't stem from a lack of opportunity, does it? The problem starts where? Right here, in the selfish human heart. And that's always the problem, is it not? It always comes back to our, our selfish, sinful human heart. And from the very beginning, God's people were created and called to work. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to, quote, to work it and to keep it. Before the fall, this was a a creation ordinance that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and said, go take care of the garden, go work it and keep it. And, you know, actually the world's oldest profession is gardening when we look at that. And the Lord put them there. 
Here's what Tim Keller said. He wrote a really helpful book called Every Good Endeavor. If you would like to have just a a book on kind of thinking about vocation and a doctrine of vocation, Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, really helpful book. Here's what he said. A biblical understanding of work energizes our desire to create value from the resources available to us. Recognizing the God who supplies our resources and who gives us the privilege of joining in as co-cultivators help us to enter into our work with a relentless spirit of creativity. He also goes on to say, Christians are to be fully engaged at work as whole persons, giving their minds, hearts, and bodies fully to doing the best job possible on the task at hand. The gospel also gives us new power for work by supplying us with a new passion and a deeper kind of rest. And so remember, our shorter catechism starts with a really helpful question. Question number one, what's the chief end of man? And that question is answered. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. How do we do that? Lots of ways. That's the fun part. Lots of ways. And so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. You know, whether you stay at home mom or you own your own business or, you know, you're retired or you work, whatever it is, we throw ourselves fully into it, recognizing that all of our work and everything that we do is to be lived for the glory of God. And so we throw ourselves wholeheartedly into all that we do for His glory. And it's a wonderfully freeing thing because the type of work that we may, we may engage in may change over the course of our lives and the various seasons that come and go. Um, but regardless of the situation, we do everything for the glory of God. Look at verse 11. Paul also mentions that those who refused to work were using their free time to meddle in the affairs of others. He calls them being busybodies. And he also links this also in 1 Timothy 5.13. He links this kind of busybodiness also with gossip. He puts those two together. And so Paul tells us that this type of behavior is to be fled from. Look at what he says in verse 12. Not, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Christians are called to, quote, glorify God in every aspect of their lives, including work, as the Holy Spirit sanctifies them and as they obey the Word of God more and more. We're called to bring all things under the glory of Christ and and under His authority and lordship in all that we do. And we're called to, you know, just be about this faithful work that God's called us to do in the little things. But again, a proper understanding of the motivation for our obedience is crucial. So Paul, Paul commands, yes, please obey and please listen. And we, are we called to obey the Word of God? Yes, we are. But why we obey and understanding that motivation is absolutely crucial. And this is where the gospel kicks in. 17th century Puritan Matthew Henry wrote in his commentary. You may have seen one of those. It's like a boat anchor. This big, massive book. Matthew Henry's commentary He says, it sanctifies a servant's work when it is done as unto God with an eye to his glory and in obedience to his command, and not merely as unto men or with regard to them only. Observe, we are really doing our duty to God when we are faithful in our duty to men. And for servants' encouragement, let them know that a good and faithful servant is neither the further from heaven for being a servant, knowing that of, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the, word of, the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Serving your masters according to the command of Christ, you serve Christ, and he will be your paymaster. You will have a glorious reward at last. 
Though now you are servants, you will receive the inheritance of sons. And so we realize that we, we serve everything that we do, we do unto the glory of the Lord. And we serve knowing and trusting and resting that even though we may not see what we think is a fair reward for this, that in the end of it all, our reward and our inheritance is secure in Christ. And that we, because of Christ, we have inherited a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we have access to that. And it's all because of the gospel. And so here's the deal. Simply put, we obey because of what Christ has already done for us. We don't obey so that God will love us. We obey because God already does love us. We love, why? Because he first loved us. That's that statement of fact that then drives the command. And so we obey because of what Christ has already done. And as we live lives of faithful obedience to God's word, we show the world around us that we are people who have been bought back from sin and death by the active and passive obedience of Christ, credited to our account through his atoning death on the cross. As we work and we do all things faithfully to the glory of the Lord, it's like a, a light going off in the world around us that we, have been, we are people who have been bought back with a price, and that we don't serve a broken and dying world. We serve and live and do everything for the glory of the one who has saved us and redeemed us. And so we do it differently. We do it for the glory of the Lord. And we look to Christ in all that we do as we imitate him, because Christ didn't selfishly kick his feet up. He selflessly gave everything he had in his incarnation to rescue his beloved people and then to give an example to follow. As I have served, as I have loved, as I have laid down my life for others, go and do likewise. And so how, how are we then called to live in the here and now as we try to be faithful and wait for Christ's return? That's our second point, which is very short. Okay, second point, we persevere in doing good for the glory of Christ in the world. So what? How are we called to live in the here and now? We keep doing good. Look at verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Paul offers some closing encouragement to this church that he loves so much, and he tells them not to lose heart. That's that Greek word that's translated grow weary. Don't become faint-hearted. Don't lose heart in doing good for others. Instead of huddling up in a Christian bunker, Paul calls them to keep sharing their faith, to keep reaching out, and to keep loving each other. And by default, that's our call today. We keep doing the same exact thing. When we get discouraged, we look to Christ. When we feel like giving up on trying to influence the culture and the world around us, we look to Christ. The answer is always the same, is it not? Look to Christ. Trust in Christ. Rest in Christ. Hebrews 12.3 the writer says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And we persevere in doing good in the world around us because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He did not grow weary or faint-hearted. He accomplished the work of redemption that we could never do on ourselves. He was faithful to complete the task the Father sent him to do. And now by faith, we're united to him. And because that's true, it changes absolutely everything. And what is a sign that Christ was faithful all the way to the end? How do we know that he was faithful? What do we have as a reminder? Look no further than the table set before you. As we remember the body and blood of Christ broken and shed to redeem broken lost sinners like you and me. And his work of redemption was done. He did not grow weary or faint-hearted. That he went all the way to the cross. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Look no further than this as a reminder of Christ's uh, faithfulness to you. Again, here's what Tim Keller said. The Bible is saying only if Jesus is your treasure and uh, only if Jesus is your treasure are you truly rich. For he is the only currency that cannot be devalued. And only if he is your savior are you truly successful. For status with him is the only status that can't be lost. When the extent and depth of Jesus' passion for you fully dawns on your heart, it will generate passion for the work that he's called you to do in this world. When you realize what he has done to rescue you, your pride and envy begin to disappear because you don't need to get your self-worth from being richer or cooler or more powerful or more comfortable than other people. The world is lying to you and it says we live and we die. It's over. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Life is insignificant. It doesn't matter. The grave is the end. Go rip it up. That is a lie. The gospel says, in him, in Christ, we live and move and have our being. Life has tremendous significance, and the grave is just the beginning of an eternal hope. And so because of that, do all things for the glory of God. One more quote from Keller. He said, everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference. And all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught. Unless there's God. If the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. Because there's a God, all that we do, even the little stuff, has significance in the world around us as we trust God. And so what? Why should you care? How do we respond? Let us not grow weary in doing good. For the glory of God and for the good of those around us as we seek to follow Christ and we rest in all that he has done and we live as people who have been bought back from the grave at great price. We live in this world and we live and we trust and we share with those around us because of what Christ has done. And it changes absolutely everything. The gospel changes everything. And so as Bonner wrote, go labor on, spend and be spent. It's your joy to do the Father's will until he either calls you home or he returns in glory. Be faithful in the little stuff. Go be faithful to Christ, faithful until the end, a long obedience in the same direction. So as we close, let's read Paul's short benediction to the Thessalonians. What were these last words that he left them with? This pronouncement and this promise that he gave them on the way out as he closed this letter. Look at what he wrote. In verse 16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And that is the pronouncement today. May the Lord of peace be with you. And may his grace abound in all that you do for the glory of God, even the little stuff, as we're faithful to Christ because of all that he has done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy. Thank you for this scripture that we read this morning, this reminder of your grace. And Lord, even as we come to the table this morning, may we remember that all we have is by your hand. And Lord, we are sinful people who have been bought back with a price. And Lord, help us because of the gospel 
to do all things for your glory, even the little stuff. Help us to be faithful. Help us to continue to reach out. Help us not to bunker up into a holy huddle. Help us to be about the work that you've called us to do until you return. And we pray and ask all these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen.